You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. A friend from Washington, D.C., he works at Georgetown University, wrote to me this morning, and he said, I'm not alone in feeling Lent last year never ended. There's a lot of truth to that. And he sent a prayer from the Moravian Brethren. The Moravians left what is now the Czech Republic in the uh, early 1700s because of religious persecution. And they were a Protestant group known for their love of God's word, for prayer, and for evangelism. It was Moravians who truly evangelized John Wesley and turned him on to the truth of the gospel. This was what they prayed. Creator, we put our trust in you, for you made the world and everything in it. How could we ever think that you couldn't handle those things in our lives that we fear? Remind us of the bridge from your heart to ours, that it is ever flowing with love, and we must give your love away to make room for more. In your holy name we pray. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, since we have received this ministry, we do not lose heart. And I'd like us just in these few moments together in God's Word to focus on that we do not lose heart and the Apostle's explanation of why he did not lose heart. That phrase, we do not lose heart, comes at the beginning of our passage. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart, and it also ends our passage. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. The heart has been a metaphor for devotion and for love, for our emotion and for our reasonable self, for, since we can remember. It has been a way of expressing the deepest self, what one's true commitments are. It's a metaphor for the emotional and the rational state, and it makes sense. Even before we knew that it was impulses from the brain that uh, had a cardiac effect, that exercise and mental activity somehow was felt in the chest. When my wife taught second grade uh, elementary school in California, she was giving out parts for a school play when a second grader sort of tugged at her and said quietly, excuse me, Mrs. Webster, but I don't do anything that makes my heart race faster. You know, it wasn't until the, uh, what, the 13th century that we got this concept of the valentine heart with the pointed end and the cleft top and the smooth sides. You know that doesn't look like the heart, right? The heart looks like a fist. It weighs less than a pound and it pumps 100,000 times a day in your body, pumping 600 600 uh, gallons of blood through your body, that's more gallons than you put in your car for a year. 
Bill Bryson, in his book, The Body, says that the heart is the most single-minded thing in you. And maybe that's part of the analogy for us. The heart does one thing, does it constantly and consistently for as long as we live. It symbolizes something of the depth of our being. Years ago, a professor of insurance at Indiana University who had honed pros for insurance policies for years questioned me one day after a sermon. I don't get this thing about the heart, he said. I don't have, I don't have a sense that the sentiment behind the image of the heart has anything to do with my Christian conviction. But it's really not anyone but the Word of God that has invented this metaphor for us. So we do not lose heart because we have this ministry. The ministry of the gospel that the Apostle Paul is referring to is the difference between the ministry of grace and mercy and the ministry of law and condemnation. In the passage before this, he references the, the ministry of commandments versus the ministry of God's mercy and blessing. We have this ministry as opposed to that ministry. The ministry of life and righteousness as opposed to that ministry of death and condemnation. The ministry of the new covenant versus the old covenant. The ministry of grace over law. We have this ministry. We have this ministry. Paul is not referencing himself and his small missionary team when he speaks this way. He is speaking of the fellowship of believers, of all of us. We have this ministry. John Stott writes, we do a great disservice to the church whenever we refer to the pastorate as the ministry. For if we use the definite article, we give the impression that we think that the pastorate is the only ministry there is. If somebody says to me in my presence nowadays, Stott says that so-and-so is going into the ministry, I try to look innocent and respond, oh, really? What ministry is that? To which I reply, why didn't you say so when they say pastoral ministry? Stott says you've got to have an adjective in front of ministry, educational ministry, medical ministry, parental ministry, missional ministry, legal ministry. We need an adjective for each and every believer because we all own this ministry of grace, this ministry of mercy. All Christians are called to the ministry. And we can speak of all Christians being called, I think, to, to salvation and to service and to sacrifice and to simplicity. It's this ministry as opposed to ministry. And then Paul goes on to give us some reasons why he will not lose heart. The first reason, and he describes that in the beginning of chapter 4, is that we do not lose heart because of the truth of the gospel. Negatively, we have renounced, Paul says, 
disgraceful and underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul refused to tamper with the truth. He didn't have to spin it. He did nothing by way of manipulating the truth. He refused to pander, to flatter, to entertain, to bully. Negatively, we are resolved not to lose heart because the truth stands by itself in the power of God's grace and through the spirit of truth. And we don't have to add to it. We don't have to in any way dress it up or manipulate it or in some way tamper with it or spin it. And Paul took great confidence in that. I think parents, friends, siblings, we can take great confidence that the truth of the gospel, as Paul expressed in the first letter to the church at Corinth, I resolved to know nothing always with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That the message of the cross, the message of grace, the message of God's mercy in the Spirit of God speaks for itself. And we converse it, we herald it, we gossip it, we state it, we counsel it. Paul took great comfort in the fact that what commended the gospel was not his power to somehow present it. But Paul's authority lay not in smooth, competent, impressive articulation of the gospel, but faithful and sincere and honest proclaiming of the gospel. We commend ourselves to each and everyone's conscience. Timothy Tennant speaks of this clarity of the gospel when he writes, when you walk into a vibrant church, you can immediately sense the difference. At every point you meet gospel clarity. The church exudes confidence in the unique work of Jesus Christ. They understand the power and authority of God's word. They feel the lostness of the world and the urgency to bring good news to everyone. At every point you observe gospel clarity. The clarity is palpable. It's infectious. You can actually sense the presence of Christ in your midst. In contrast, when you walk into churches in decline, you are immediately brought into the fog. What is the fog? It's the inability to be clear about anything. There's no clarity about who Jesus Christ is or what he's done. There's no clarity about the scriptures as the authoritative word of God. There's no clarity about the urgency to reach the lost. In the fog, Jesus Christ is just one of many noble teachers in the world. The first reason we do not lose heart is because of the truth of the gospel. Negatively, we don't have to tamper with it. We don't have to manipulate it. Positively, we proclaim it. We herald it. And the verb to proclaim is a secular word to report, to witness. It's not a preachy word. It's not a word that takes place inside the nave. It's a word that takes place outside. 
in the realm of God's grace. The second reason we do not lose heart because of the burden, the burden of unbelief does not fall on us. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ in the image of God. In the image of God. Now, we know that Paul was passionately concerned for those who were lost. And at one point even said, I wish that I were accursed so that my Jewish brethren would accept Christ. But the burden of convincing people of the gospel or the burden of the unbelief and resistance to the gospel, Paul attributed to the God of this world not to our inadequacy, not to our inability to articulate it and to sort of knock people's socks off with the gospel. That's great relief. And it's a great freedom then to be able to articulate and express the gospel knowing that the power of the Spirit of God commends it. And certainly Paul understood on that Damascus road, the glory of God in Christ shined on him, knocking him to the ground, literally blinding him, and he hears a voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Apostle Paul understood the power of God's glory to be able to break in on people's lives. He had experienced that personally, and undoubtedly, there are people in this room that have experienced that as well. Where there's really not a human rational reason why you've come to Christ, and yet the power of God in Christ has moved you. The third reason, our hearts are resolute because we proclaim, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Again, I think we ought to take this we seriously. We have a shared responsibility. Jesus on the road to Emmaus was not in a sanctuary or a nave, and yet he proclaimed the scriptures to those two disciples. And their response was, our hearts were burning within us as he opened the scriptures to us. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. We know in Corinth that making much of oneself was important for commending any sort of rhetorical message. And Paul is distancing himself from that kind of pressure. He is presenting the gospel not himself, and he's not selling people on himself. Negatively, we preach not ourselves, but positively, we do preach who we are. I do think we need to play the gospel to its full extent. When you listen to Yo-Yo Ma, the celloist, you get the sense that he's not playing for an audience. He's playing the music. It doesn't really matter what the audience is doing or thinking. Or Wynton Marcellus, the jazz trumpeter. 
That came home to me fairly personally at a, a meeting, a denominational meeting that Zach Hicks and I attended. Zach, a worship pastor here at uh, the Advent, he was asked to lead worship after five hours of a business meeting during a ice cream social. The worst possible context for trying to lead anything. But I saw in Zach that that didn't bother him. People were milling around and talking and conversing, and here he was supposed to lead worship. And all he did was break out his guitar and start singing songs of praise, and it didn't matter what everybody else was doing. He was just in the zone, worshiping. And I saw a passion there for praising God that, uh, to me, was truly remarkable. We do need to play the gospel for all it's worth, but we're not preaching ourselves, we're preaching Jesus Christ. Parker Palmer is an educator, and in his book, The Courage to Teach, he talks about, he, he references one of his uh, students saying that all her bad teachers were alike. A bad teacher, it's like bubble speech, like in a cartoon. It's, it's, it doesn't come from within, it's, it's just there, fixed like above their head. But she said, all my good teachers are different. There's a uniqueness about somebody who is grabbed by the subject. And that subject is what sort of drives the communication. And for the Apostle Paul, and I hope for us, it is the power of the gospel, the truth of a crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord A fourth reason why we should not lose heart. We do not lose heart because we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power of God belongs to God and not to us. Ernie Minimeyer was a, an elder in our church in, in San Diego long retired an engineer in San Diego. Gracie and he uh, to, gave indication of a, a beautiful and wonderful marriage. Gracie received a, was infected with a bacterial infection on Tuesday, and she died on Thursday. She had been in church worshiping on Sunday, dead by Thursday. And the next Sunday, in the place where they always sat, Ernie Minnemeyer was in the pew singing the hymns. Ernie was uh, raised in the Moravian Brethren tradition. There was such a sense of strength in him. Heartbroken, yet such a strong voice. And I said, Ernie, I'm surprised to see you here. And he said, where else would I be? There was a sense of real conviction and faith and trust in Christ. 
This morning, I had a chance to speak with Leland Hull before the early service. Leland, as many of you know, lost Anne just a short time ago, a few weeks ago. That same sort of, it reminded me of Ernie. That same sort of bedrock faith in Christ conviction. We do not lose heart because we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. My best friend in college, a roommate, after my father died, we spent several weeks busing through England together. Steve went on to get a medical degree and to serve as a medical missionary in Liberia, Monrovia, along with his wife, Sue. They served during those Civil War years in Liberia, 1989 to 1997. Three times their hospital was completely destroyed. All the equipment was uh, broken or stolen. And three times the Beefus has returned, rebuilt, reestablished the medical ministry there. One of the reasons I chose this of the lectionary readings to preach on was because this was Steve's favorite passage. We preach not ourselves, we preach Jesus Christ. For we hold, we hold this in jars of clay so that the surpassing power of Christ might be revealed. One of Steve's last, uh, Steve was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, stayed on in, because of the critical phase at which the hospital was in, even though he could feel the tumor in his abdomen, got back home, had a stem cell replacement. Everything was done to preserve his physical health. But as he wrote, in these last days, many have written that they still pray for a cure. That's fine. I sure wouldn't mind. But at this stage in my life, it appears that maintaining a life of faith in the months left to me will be a bigger challenge than faith for a cure. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart because of the truth of the gospel. Negatively, we refuse to tamper with it, twist it, and spin it. Positively, we play the gospel for all it's worth. We do not lose heart because of the glory of the gospel. Negatively, unbelief belongs to the God of this world. Positively, God shines the light of his glory in this world and the darkness is not able to overcome it. We do not lose heart because we are proclaimers of the gospel. We don't preach ourselves. We preach who we are because of Christ. We preach Jesus Christ and the gospel. And fourthly, we do not lose heart because of the power of the gospel. Yes, we hold this gospel in frail, human, weak, human beings, jars of clay. But positively, we do that to display the all-surpassing power of God in Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.